Would you turn with me, please, to the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians is a book that gets prophecy buffs going. We uh, all like to talk about the future. Whenever something of a predictive nature shows up in in a book, it uh, gets our attention. This book has a lot to say about coming events, but the really interesting thing about 2 Thessalonians is that Paul's purpose for writing it had nothing whatever to do with the future. He had a very mundane, work-a-day, down-to-earth problem that he needed to come to grips with. The, The bottom line of the book, which we will look at in a moment, is simply this. Paul commands us to get a job and go to work. So many of the books in the Bible are concerned with uh, practical matters of that nature. The entire book of Philippians, I believe, was written because there were two people in the church in Philippi that couldn't get along, and all the very complex uh, theology, what theologians describe as the canonic theology of the Apostle Paul, this uh, difficult section dealing with Christ's emptying of himself, uh, all of that uh, is addressed toward one issue. There were two people in the church that couldn't get along, and that's Paul's primary concern. And I think the problem here in Thessalonica was a bunch of people who were shirkers. They were freeloading. They were gold bricks. They were living off of the largesse of, of uh, other Christians, and Paul needed to straighten that, uh, that issue out. Well, let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Uh, that uh, word, finally, spoken by a pastor is the sweetest words in a congregation's ears. Uh, I had someone tell me once that he had never understood the concept of eternity until he heard me preach. Uh, I think he was kidding. But uh, Paul is wrapping up his argument, coming to uh, his conclusion. Finally, brothers, pray for us. That the message of the Lord, that is the word of the Lord, the apostolic word. Remember when Paul preached, he, he was a firm believer in his apostolic authority. He's very uh, conscious of, it, of that authority. Earlier in these epistles, he says to the church in Thessalonica, when you receive my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God that is at work among you. And Paul wrote when he spoke, he was conscious of the fact that what he said What he put on the page was literally the word of God. Pray for us, he says, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. You heard our word, you believed it, you obeyed it. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, not everyone believes my words, but... The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil. And you would expect him to say he will protect us. But Paul is zeroing in in on one issue, which is uh, the matter of their obedience to his authority. Paul says, pray for us as we preach that others will obey, that we may deliver from evil men who don't obey, and that you may be delivered from the evil one who would seduce you away from obedience. And we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. You see, he's focusing on the folks in Thessalonica. I have a command, he says, to address to you. I'm sure you will obey. 
May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In other words, whatever you do, you must do out of an awareness of God's deep, intense, ongoing, personal love for you. And you must do with the endurance of Christ, that is, the dogged perseverance of our Lord, who did what was right despite all counterindications. Paul is preparing them for the command. What command? It follows in verse 6. This, he says, we are commanding you. He brings out all the big guns. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, what? To stay away from uh, drug dealers, to stay away from adulterers, to stay away from idolaters? No. We command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Now, Paul's not talking about the good use of leisure time here. He's rather talking about sloth. The word that's used uh, here that's translated idle is a word that was used in Paul's day for apprentices that uh, were truant, that showed up late for work, that dogged it on the job, that uh, really did not work hard. That's the idea of slothfulness. And so what Paul is addressing here, what he's speaking to, is the whole issue of, uh, of, of not working, not laboring. Now, we don't know what was going on and why people were foregoing work, but uh, we gather that it had something to do with the second coming of Christ because uh, he emphasizes that, uh, that truth to such an extent in the book. And I personally think that there were a group of uh, sort of supercilious, super-righteous, super-pious people who were saying, well, uh, Jesus is coming back and it's all going to burn up someday, so why should we work? We're not going to work, but what... What their actions amounted to is that they were simply freeloading off of everyone else. They were showing up on other Christians' doors with their hand out. You know what a preacher's handshake looks like. like that. You know. <laughs> they were waiting for someone to cross their palm to, uh, to feed them, take care of them, you see. And they were an enormous burden on the rest of the, uh, of the body there in, uh, in Thessalonica. And so Paul says, if this is happening... I want you to stay away from them. Don't associate yourself with them. Literally, don't mix yourself up with them. Don't buy into that, into that attitude because they're not living according to the teaching you receive from us. Now, Paul's teaching took the form of uh, both example and uh, verbal proclamation. Paul says in verse 7, You yourself know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle. He uses the same word that he applies to those who were idle in Thessalonica. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling. He uses very strong words, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 9, as he does here, that as an apostle he had the right to be supported by the church. But when he went to Thessalonica, there was no church there. Thessalonica had never been evangelized. So when the apostle Paul came to that city, he was preaching the gospel to people who were not believers, and he wanted to make the gospel free of charge. He didn't want to burden anyone with his support. So he preached uh, the gospel freely to people, but he had to live. He had to pay the rent on his apartment. He had to buy food. 
He had to put gas in his truck. He needed, he needed money. And so he worked. Now, in those days, every Jewish boy learned a trade. He either learned it from his father, he learned his father's trade, or he was apprenticed to a master craftsman. Paul's trade was leather working. He made leather garments and leather tents. So Paul would invest in leather and he'd set up shop in the agro, the marketplace there in Thessalonica, and he would sew leather garments for people. He worked hard. He worked late into the night, burning the midnight olive oil in order to prepare uh, 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 apparel, leather apparel for others. And then he would have to study when he could, spend his time studying the scriptures late at night or early in the morning. And uh, he, it was hard. It was hard work. It was difficult for him. But he wanted to set them an example by working hard. Furthermore, he gave them this command, a rule of thumb by which uh, they should live. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we kept giving you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Strikes me that would be a great plaque to put on our kid's wall. (laughs) No worky, no eaty. I have to understand Paul's not talking about people who can't work. Those that are disabled, those that are sick, those that can't find a job, those who are desperately looking for work and can't. Paul makes it very clear he's talking about people who will not work, who won't work. Freeloaders, gold bricks, people that are waiting for a handout. Some people, for various reasons, single parents often must live on welfare for a while. Hopefully you're learning a skill so you can get out of that uh, very difficult Situation. That's those things just happen to us. Paul's not talking about that sort of thing or living on unemployment for a while while you're out looking for for work. He's rather talking about people who will not work. And Paul says, if they don't work, don't support them. He doesn't mean that you can't occasionally feed them. This expression, neither shall he eat, is a as as the commentators say, is a Hebraism. It's a Hebraic idiom. Don't support them, is the idea. Don't enable them in their, uh, uh, in their laziness. They have to feel the full weight of the consequences of their action. Let them suffer the consequences. If they get hungry enough, then they'll go out and get a job. So Paul says, both by my example and by my teaching, I wanted you to know that it's very important for you to work. And he goes on in verse 11, and this is like... Uh, a finger really coming up out of the text and pointing to the shirkers in the in the church there in Thessalonica. Paul says, we keep hearing that some among you are idle as travelers would come by Paul's home. They would tell him what was going on in Thessalonica, and apparently this report was uh, fairly widespread. There were a number of people that were engaged in this, uh, in, in this, uh, out, this activity. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They're busybodies. Uh, you know the old adage, uh, the devil's idle hands are a devil's workshop. These were people that uh, they weren't busy about their own business, business, so they were busy about everybody else's business. They were spending a lot of time just talking to people and getting in their way and creating problems for them and trying to tell them how to live their own lives. And they, they, they were focusing on others instead of, of their own sin. Paul says, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is serious business, Paul says. This comes to you with the authority of Jesus Christ. This is his word. They are to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Work, he says, because Jesus commanded it. Now, there are other reasons for working, as we'll see in a moment. But uh, bottom line, it's a matter of obedience to Christ. Work, because it's commanded. Then he says a word to workers. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right, or doing what is noble, actually, is, is the word. And he's talking about the nobility of work. Don't get tired of working. The word to shirkers is get a job and go to work. The word to workers is don't get tired of working, because what you're doing is noble. It may be the most menial, mindless task you could ever conceive, but what you're doing is noble, because work is noble. Some people feel that the work itself is cursed. Uh, if you've ever visited uh, Charlie Brown's restaurant in the San Francisco Bay Area, as you walk into the restaurant, there's a bar on the right, and over the bar is a plaque that says, uh, work is the curse of the drinking class on it, which you understand is just the opposite uh, statement of the old adage, uh, drink is the curse of the working class. Work is the curse of the drinking class. A lot of people feel that way. Their work is cursed. The work is not cursed. The ground is cursed. The command to work predates the fall. Go back to the book of Genesis, and uh, you look at what uh, what's said there in, in that book. Uh, Genesis is a book about origins, gives us the beginnings of all sorts of things. And in the book of Genesis, you have the beginning of work. God created a man and a woman, and he put them in the garden, he said to the man, this is your, this is your helper. That's a, that's a very strong word. It's not a word for a gopher or for someone to run and fetch for you. It's a word that's used in, I think, 66 times in the Old Testament for God himself, who is our helper. Uh, it, it, it has to do with, you know, I, I guess the best word for it is a sidekick, someone who, who is associated with you in the task of bringing the world under your control. The mandate to rule and to serve the earth and to care for the earth and to manage it and, and, to, and to literally to serve it, to care for it, was given to both man and woman. They were to be associated in that uh, task. And so he put them in the garden. He gave them an ideal setting. They had uh, a great deal of water with which they could irrigate crops they had a pattern there. I believe the garden was intended to be a pattern for man and woman so that they could go from that place and make the whole universe a garden, use their own creativity and their personality, uh, their innovative uh, capacities, their gifts, to make a garden out of, out of the whole world. And the first thing God did to man is to hand him a ditching tool and a pair of rubber boots and say, go to work, go to work. It's a time clock nailed to a tree over there. Punch in every morning at 8 o'clock and work and work hard. And you see, it's after that command that the fall occurred. Work is not cursed. The ground is cursed. What happened as a result of the fall is that work became hard, arduous, difficult. Um, 
And most of our uh, concern today in work is that we're trying to overcome the works of the, uh, the, the results of the fall, the consequences of the fall. In fact, so much of what we're doing is trying to regain ground that was lost in the fall. We're trying to to reconstruct a universe that's, that's disordered and in chaos. And in a real sense, what we do when we go to work is fight the devil. I often say to my doctor friends, well, you're out fighting the devil again today because that's what they're doing. So what policemen are doing when they're called to preserve uh, uh, to uh, serve and to protect. You see, they're, they're trying to undo the works of, of the devil. They're trying to uh, uh, dispel the works of darkness. And that's what makes work so hard today. Work is hard. Uh, and I think that's why people become alcohol, uh, workaholics, maybe alcoholics too, but workaholics, both men and women, because they feel that if they just work hard enough, the ground will eventually soften and the crops will grow, but it just doesn't happen. The ground still works hard, even holy ground. My turf works hard. There is no real satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, in work itself apart from God because the ground works hard. In the sweat of your brow, God said, you'll, you'll earn your bread. But we have to understand that there's nothing wrong with work. Work is good. Work is mandated. As a matter of fact, the ideal life is not a life of leisure. That's what the Florida kids think. And that's what people think when they retire. Now I don't have to work anymore. But you know what people do when they retire? They die. Unless they have something to do. Because we were made to work. That's why I think we struggle with our sense of worth when we're out of work. Every man and woman I know who's been out of work for a while has that turmoil within. That's why we are inclined to struggle when we go on vacations even. You know, after a couple of weeks on vacation, you start uh, feeling worthless. Why? Because so much of our worth comes from what we do. Now, ultimately, we've got to find our sense of worth from God. We've got to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us. But there is a sense in which since we as men and women were made to work, if we don't work, we feel useless. We feel worthless. We lose our sense of value, and that's as it should be, because that's what we were made for. We were created to work. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, let me show you a couple of passages. Would you turn with me to uh, Ephesians 4:28? I don't have time this morning to develop a philosophy of work. It's something we're thinking through. Why work? Well, for one reason, we, we work to dispel the works of darkness in this world, to push back the consequences of, of the fall. We're fighting the devil. We want to use our creativity and ingenuity to make the world a better place in which to live. We want as much as possible to beautify the world, to make, make the world according to the pattern of Eden. We realize that in a real sense we're fighting a battle that's lost, that the world is going to decay. The law of entropy is in effect. Things are going to... But, but nevertheless, this is our struggle. But Paul puts it here in Ephesians in a little different way. This is, as you know, the, the section of the book of Ephesians where Paul centers in on some very concrete acts of obedience. In verse 28, he says, He who has been stealing must steal no more, but must work. Uh, he uses a, a very strong word, same word that Paul uses as translated toil in, in Thessalonians. 
Just work hard. Work hard. Doing something useful. That's an interesting uh, statement. It's, it's worth thinking through in terms of your vocation. Are you doing anything useful? Are you doing anything that, that really serves mankind? You know, all sorts of things. As I look over this congregation and I spot people that I know, some of you are firemen, policemen, painters, carpenters, engineers, uh, attorneys, uh, uh, farmers, ranchers, homemakers. It's a question you have to ask yourself. Is what I am doing really useful? Is it making the world in any sense a better place to live? Is it serving People. Yeah, Paul goes on to make that statement. Doing something good, useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about money as a reward for work. Nowhere. And we need to, we need to work for salaries, most of us do, because we have to provide for our families, and there's nothing wrong with that pursuit. But the bottom line can't be money. The bottom line can't be power. The bottom line can't be prestige. The bottom line can't be upward mobility. Those things may have a place. If God exalts you, that's fine. If God gives you a greater salary, that's fine. You don't need to dispense with that gift. Uh, You need to forego that gift. But that's not the bottom line. According to Paul... The bottom line is to do something useful. If you're doing something really harmful, then you need to, we all need to think again about that vocation. Is that really something we ought to be doing? And then secondly, we need to do what we do in order to serve others. That's always the bottom line. Serving others, for Christ's sake, as Paul would put it. Now, um, that's a pursuit that uh, never ends. We're never off the job. Because money doesn't enter into it. Now let me give you some illustrations of, of how I think this works out. Some of us men, uh, we work long hours. I know you do. Um, I, I, the advertisements for the uh, daytimers, the new 1990s uh, daytimers came out this last week and I noticed now the work day in the daytimer Starts at 7 o'clock in the morning and runs until 7 in the evening. It used to be 8 to 5. Now it's 7 to 7. I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're finally realizing that's, that's what a work day looks like, 7 to 7. Now, a lot of you men and women are putting in a lot of, lot of hours in the day. And I want to talk to you men because a lot of us, a lot of you know, we men come home and we punch out when we walk in the front door. Because we don't get paid to do any more. We only get paid to work from 8 to 5 or 7 to 7. So we walk in the house and we watch our wives do all the work. They've been working all day. As Carolyn used to say, people would ask her, do you work when we had little children? She'd say, yeah, I just don't get paid for it. They've been working all day. But we have this mindset, I put in my 8 hours, my 10 hours, my 12 hours. And we don't help around the house. That's men. That's women's work. It's an interesting statement of one of the prophets. I forgot which. I was going to look it up before this morning, and I forgot about it. Where prophet describes Moab as a bowl which is going to be turned upside down and wiped clean. And this is the way the prophet puts it, as a man wipes out the inside of a bowl. So apparently from a scriptural standpoint, washing dishes is not necessarily women's work. 
the men in that area washed dishes as, as well. See, so what I'm saying, gentlemen, is that if we have this understanding of work, that we don't work for money, and then we're not off the job when we're not being paid for it, then we walk in the house with that mindset, I am still at work. And so we take the kids off of our wives' hands, and we wash dishes, and we help put away dishes, and we help clean house, particularly where both spouses work. We're living in a culture where this, for many people, is a necessity, and of course, the question we have to ask ourselves, is this really a necessity or is this just a matter of uh, increasing our standard of living? Maybe it'd be better if both of you not work and one of you invest more time in ministry. That's a question you've got to answer before God. But in some cases, both of you have to work. If that's the case, then when you come home, whose work is it to keep the house and to wash the dishes, and to do all the things that need to be done around the house. See, a lot of men still have this mindset, even though my wife works, when I come home, I'm off work. But once we understand, it has nothing to do with money, you see. We're always on the job. We're always working. And that it, while it's good to have leisure time, as George MacDonald says, it's good to have a long nothing to do when everything else is done. We need leisure time. We need time off. But we need to get out of our head this idea that my time is my own, when I'm not being paid for it. There's an interesting uh, parable, I guess you'd call it, that Jesus uh, gives us. Luke records it in, in Luke 17. came out of the question the disciples asked about how many times should I, I forgive my brother. You know the story. Jesus said essentially an infinite number of times. The apostles in mass. It's the only place in the Gospels where it says all the apostles at the same time said the same thing. Increase our faith, they said. How can I forgive my brother an infinite number of times. And Jesus said, well, it's like this. When a servant comes in after a long day in the fields and his master asks him to prepare dinner, he does that, and then he says, at the end of it all, I've only been an unprofitable servant. He doesn't expect the master then to feed him when he comes in. He continues to serve. The point that Jesus is making there is that it's not a question of faith. It's a matter of obedience. You just keep on serving, and in this case, serving God. And that's what you're doing when you serve your family. You, you serve your family for the sake of Christ, you see. We serve others for Christ's sake. So that means it has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with upward mobility. It's just a, it's a mindset of, of serving people, doing useful, good things for people, no matter what it, what it costs us, and to keep on serving out of obedience to Christ. This is serious business, you see. He brings into the argument the authority, not only his own authority, but the authority of, of Jesus Christ. So you never stop serving. High school kids, I suppose their work is going to school. It's easy for high school, college people who are living at home, junior high people, to think, well, I've done my work, I've been to school all day, so I can kick back and relax, I don't have to work around the house. They need to develop the same attitude. We serve one another within the, within the, the family. We never stop serving. The problem, I suppose, is that some of you are stuck in jobs that are menial and, and mindless, and uh, they really don't have much challenge. They don't require a lot of thought. And you're wondering how you can serve in that capacity. 
Paul put it this way in Colossians 3.17. He said, whatever you do, do with all your heart as to the Lord and not unto men. Do it for him. Do it for his sake. Even if no one appreciates you, no one, even if no one ever says thank you, even if you labor on unnoticed and unrecognized and unappreciated, just keep doing it for his sake. Look for opportunities within that sphere of activity to, to influence the lives of others, to minister quietly to them, and continue to do what you're doing for his sake, knowing that at the end he will say, well done, my good and, and faithful servant. Uh, when I was in college, I used to I worked a couple of summers at Lane's Rocky Mountain Boys Camp in Colorado. Uh, I was a trick trip counselor there and taking kids off and backpack trips. And on one trip, I we went into a, an area up above Estes Park, and uh, uh, out in the middle of the woods, out in the middle of nowhere, I mean nowhere. I don't know what it was doing back there. Was the most beautifully constructed outhouse I have ever seen. In my life, it's made out of knotty pine. It was it was varnished, and it was just a thing of beauty. And I was looking at the foundation, and I, there was an inscription in the foundation. I realized it was done by the CCC, the uh, the operation that uh, uh, President Roosevelt began during the Depression years to put people to work. The uh, Civil Conservation Corps, they would put people in uh, barracks, almost like army barracks, and they would give them useful things to do. And it struck me, some dear soul was put out in the middle of the woods with a saw and a hammer and some nails and told to build an outhouse. And perhaps there there was a hunting camp there at one time or some useful uh, function for that outhouse. And that dear guy labored on out there unnoticed. No one knew what he did. He just worked quietly at his job building an outhouse. And I thought, how many of us are doing the same thing? You know, a lot of our jobs really amount to the same sort of thing. But if we have that mindset, you know, what we're doing, we're doing for the Lord's sake and for his well done. And just to do it quietly, without any thought of fanfare, without any thought this this may project you into the limelight, just do it faithfully for him, for his sake. You know the story of Michelangelo, for four and a half years, he lay on his back on a scaffold 60 feet off the floor of the Sistine Chapel, plaster dust falling into his eyes and flaming his eyes so that he was, uh, you know, he was troubled. His eyesight uh, bothered him for the rest of his life. His skin peeled off his hands from working in wet plaster. And uh, every other day or so, the Pope's secretary would go up on the scaffold and threaten to throw him to the floor if he didn't finish the painting. And he just kept working and working away. And one day he was up in some little corner of the Sistine Chapel painting something up there. And his helper said, why, why, are, you, why are you attending with such detail to this painting up here? No one will see it. Michelangelo said, God will see it. God will see it. And that's the way we have to look at our, at our labor. Now, uh, in verse 14, Paul says... This is very important. He gives a word to the shirkers, go to work, get a job. A word to the workers, what you're doing is noble, stay with it, never tire of doing what's right. And then a word to all of us, not just the leadership of the church, but to everyone. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and you notice what instruction he's talking about. It's just a matter of sloth. Don't associate with him. 
in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, again, Paul's perspective is that the brother is not the enemy. He's the victim of the enemy who has seduced him into believing that inactivity is the highest possible good. And uh, this is a brother that needs to be salvaged. He says, go, go after him. Don't associate with him. Appeal to him. And Paul is thinking here of the process that's outlined in other places in Scripture to appeal, to appeal, to appeal. If the brother doesn't respond, then don't associate with him so that he may feel ashamed. And inherent in that idea is that he may be restored. Warn him, he says, as a brother. We don't like to confront people. We live in a society that that our, our theme song is Don't Fence Me In. And uh, we don't want to take responsibility for anyone else, and we don't want them messing around in our lives. But Paul is saying sloth is serious sin. It's, it's really a very serious thing to be lazy, to not be occupied in serving as you can. And if we see a brother or sister who is disobedient to the apostles in this matter, then don't regard him as an enemy, but a warning of the consequences of his or her behavior. Now, uh, in the last part of the book, Paul gives final greetings, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, uh, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I read through this chapter this last week, and uh, it struck me again that Peace is the commodity that we most need in this world. That's why it's so important that Jesus came. He's the Prince of Peace. And uh, so often, when we have a problem, there are two problems. We have the problem itself, and then we have the problem of anxiety over the problem. You see, in Thessalonica, there was the problem of sloth, and perhaps fear of what you might get into if you have to go look for a job. And then there is the problem of having to confront people who were not out looking for jobs, who weren't aggressively looking for jobs. And that's one set of problems. But the bigger problem is anxiety, anxiety over looking for a job, anxiety over having to speak to a brother about, uh, about his, uh, his sin. And what we need is to face into the problem with the assurance that we have the Lord's peace. That's something that he gives, and he gives supernaturally. I think of the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm struck. These men were competent mariners. They had navigated their way through storms on that lake time and time again. But this storm was so, uh, so strong, they panicked. The wind uh, probably ripped the sail to shreds. The ship began to sink. They were bailing like crazy, but they were paralyzed by fear. And the Lord spoke to their fear on that occasion. Peace, be still, he said. They still had to row the boat to the other side. But he settled the issue of, of their anxiety, which is what God will do for you. This is the season of the Prince of Peace. This is We're centered on him during this time. And we need to remember he's the one that gives tranquility and peace and quiet to our hearts in the midst of these, these busy, busy days and all of the problems that, that we have to face. 
we have these invisible resources. The Lord is with us. Gary Worshing, a friend of mine, gave me a cartoon this last week. It showed this scruffy-looking prophet in sandals and goatee with a placard. The placard read, The end of the, of the world is not at hand. You've got to learn to cope. <laughs> and I thought, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that is, there's, there's a bit of truth in that. We don't know when the end of the world is coming. It, it could come within our lifetime. It could come very soon. That's uh, that's the, the hope that we have that's, that's safe and secure, keeps us steady. But he hasn't come yet. And in the meantime, we have to cope. And the way we cope is by knowing that the Lord is with us. Now, if you happen to pick up this manuscript as it was originally penned, if you had Paul's original letter, you would discover that the last two verses are in a different hand. Paul uh, at this point, took the pen in hand and he scrawled his own signature, Paulus, across the page and he wrote this final greeting. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Up to this point, his, his secretary, his scribe, had been writing and now Paul takes, takes the pen out of his hand and he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's uh, Paul's last note, his final note, and perhaps the most important note of all. Grace be with you all. Someone has defined grace <coughs> in terms of an acrostic based on the letters G-R-A-C-E. Grace is God's resources at Christ's expense. Right now at this Christmas season, we're thinking a great deal about what it cost Christ to come in terms of his, as someone has put it, disglorification, his humiliation, his, the fact that he was born in a filthy, dirty stable, the fact that he, he loved us so much that he was willing to come where we are and identify with us and then ultimately to die for us. That's the extent of his love for us and his identification with us. That's what it cost him so God could give. That's the greatest gift of all. It's God himself. That's what he wants to give us. So whatever you have to face, perhaps you've been, you've been convicted by this passage and you realize that you need to change your attitude toward your work, but you know it's going to cost you a great deal. God's resources are available to you at Christ's expense. Or maybe you need to talk to a brother or sister who is indolent and lazy and slothful and, and you need very lovingly and graciously to confront them. Maybe it's one of your kids uh, you know, those are all always tough times, but I want you to know that God's resources are available at Christ's expense. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? Lord, understanding uh, work in this way changes our perspective on so many things. It teaches us to speak with courtesy and, and uh, to deal with our customers in honesty and integrity. It means that uh, the bottom line is always service and concern for people and a desire to meet people's needs, not to, not to make money from them. It means that uh, we have to think through the product that we sell, not how are we going to sell this, this thing that we make or do, but is this thing worth selling? Is it really of use to people? Is it going to serve their needs 
Is this the kindest, most loving thing that we can do for others? And Lord, we would ask that, that you would change our attitude toward work in all spheres of, of our activity. When we're off the job, help us to be willing to serve, keep on serving, no matter uh, what the consequences are, even if we're not appreciated or recognized for what we do. Give us that servant's heart. Help us to live not for the praise and appreciation of others and for the financial reward that comes from, from, from our service, but rather for your well done, knowing that you're pleased with us when we, we give with all of our heart. Thank you for this reminder, given none too gently. Very, uh, the apostles very straightforward with us, and we need to hear these words, hard words, but good words, because we know they're truth. We pray that your spirit would make this truth a living reality in us. As we go out in this busy time when we're, we tend to get preoccupied with, uh, with buying and, and selling and, and uh, putting things together for Christmas, that we would, we would focus on serving those that, that come into our, into our lives, giving ourselves away in, in acts of kindness as as you have given yourself to us in the kindest act of all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.